Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Cutting down uh, corporate income taxes or individual uh, taxes. I got, well, some of us got hosed a little bit, but that's okay. It was, for the most part, it was really good and surprisingly, record revenue for our government. Isn't that amazing? Right. Um, in, in taxes were decreased and record revenues for our uh, government. However, the concern was our government doesn't know how to live within its means. In today's economy, more people than ever are looking to buy and sell businesses. But how do you do it? Welcome to The Deal Board, presented by Transworld Business Advisors. Straight talk about real deals and real people. Listen to stories, interviews, and expert advice to help your business sale, merger, or acquisition process. Now, here are your business exit experts, Andy and Jessica. Welcome back to The Deal Board, everybody. And today... You know, we spend a lot of time talking about getting your business ready for sale, the actual sale process. But today we're going to talk about getting ready for the post-closing transition. And we've got a variety of interviews and experts on the show that are going to talk about some of the issues that come up immediately before closing or even after closing. Yeah. And there's three great experts. The first one, Russell Halra from Halra LLC. He's a lawyer very well versed in the world of independent contractors. And we talk about how companies can get in trouble with their independent contractors agreement, what's going on out there in the world with the gig economy and what he expects in the future and how that affects deals. And it's a great conversation. Yeah. And then next up, we have Jake Kent. He runs JCMR Technologies and also uh, he's the chief acquisition lifeguard for the acquisition lifeguards. And what they do is they focus on the IT transition um, and the integration when a merger happens and how do you bring those IT systems together? Yeah, it's not so easy. As we no, not, not at all. <laughs> yeah, as we know, every business knows what uh, bringing together IT platforms is like. And then we have the engineer of finance. He has his own podcast, Ken Green. And we have a very spirited conversation about capital gains and how to deal with capital gains in deals right now. And what does he think is going to happen in the future? And we were holding this back and we were waiting for something for the other shoe to drop out there in the world and it's not dropping. So we just want to get this out there. So you have this information right now. Yeah, we get a lot of questions about capital gains, and we don't want to theorize or project what we think is going to happen. But we think this is great information for you all to have now, and we can always do an update show once something more solid um, is introduced. But I hope these interviews are helpful. Again, this is this is things that come up either right at closing or right after closing. And I think a lot of times business owners are so focused on that end game, the goal line of getting the deal done, that these issues come up, and and it's a little bit. I would say not unprepared, but a little bit of a surprise for both the buyers and sellers that more work has to be done. Yeah. And of course, we always throw in a deal of the week and a listing of the week. We are so busy. We got some great ones for you today. Great. Well, hope you enjoy the show. Let's get at it. Transworld Business Advisors is the world's largest business brokerage and mergers and acquisitions firm with over 500 brokers in nearly 200 offices worldwide. 
Transworld's team handles thousands of business sales every year. To be connected with a qualified business broker or learn more about the buying and selling process, visit tworld.com forward slash the deal board or call 888-719-9098. Hey, welcome back everybody to the deal board. And today we have a very special guest, Russell Halra from Halra LLC. He is a very, very accomplished attorney uh, and I will let him tell his story. But today we are talking about uh, businesses. We're talking about specifically independent contractor agreements and what we see coming down the road for small business because uh, they love using independent contractors, but there is a definite wrong way to do that. So uh, Russell, welcome. And why don't you give us a little bit of background about you and your practice, and then we could jump into the subject. Well, thank you, Andrew. Uh, yeah, by way of background, I guess I started out generally as a tax lawyer. So I worked with a, a tax firm in, in D.C. here when there were years. Then I moved to uh, Littler Mendelssohn, which is a large labor and employment law firm. So I was in the D.C. office of Littler Mendelssohn about seven or eight years. I was an equity partner in that firm. And then I left that firm to set up my own firm to really focus on, at that time, employee benefits and what I call contingent workers, which is really companies doing business with non-employees. Yeah, and that's certainly been the case that a lot of industries have used historically, like the real estate industry, like some of the other industries. But um, it seems like that the world is getting tougher to do that in, and there's been some high-profile cases. What do you see currently in the marketplace? Well, I think it's um, at the state level, there are states like California, which have made it challenging to operate with independent contractors, at least in certain types of business models. And then to say at the federal level, uh, years ago, the, the big concern once was you know, IRS audits. But then more recently at the federal level, I think the greater concern has been the US Department of Labor investigations. They call them investigations, not audits, but it's very similar. Uh, evaluating are these, especially with respect to independent contractor relationships, yeah, the issue is are they employees or independent contractors? In the tax world, if you misclassify independent contractors, you owe federal, federal employment taxes. Nowadays, you could also have an Affordable Care Act problem, but then under the, at the U.S. Department of Labor, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, Question is, are they employees or independent contractors? If they're misclassified, you could have potential liability if you violate the overtime minimum wage requirements under the FLSA. And, and also, unlike the IRS, uh, the FLSA issues also can arise through uh, private plaintiff lawsuits, whereas with the tax area, it really is IRS only. So what industries do you see trying to be independent contractors that may not do it, may not be doing it right? Well, I'd say the highest profile industry, I think that's run into trouble, is the uh, you know, certain types of the gig economy type companies. And again, I think it really depends upon how they are structured. Another industry I do a lot of work in kind of predated the gig economy model, but operated essentially operates the same type of model what we refer to as more like a referral service, a broker services referral agency. 
again, it's an entity contracts with an independent contractor for that independent contractor to provide services for a third party product. And, and that model traditionally has been defensible under for purposes of federal employment taxes as well as under the FLSA. But what happens sometimes depends on how that model is structured. It can be set up to be defensible or it can become, again, it's, it's a factual issue. It also depends on you know, how the details of how the model is structured. So there's definite ways that people get can get in trouble. You know, what's the best practice if you are running independent contractors? Uh, you, you certainly see a lot of uh, construction companies trying to do that. You see um, certainly realtors have done that for many, many years, but even business brokers do that. What's the best way, you know, what's the best practices in trying to set that up? Well, ideally, again, the, the fundamental kind of dividing line on worker status has been established by what they call the common law test, and it is essentially the right of control. If a company controls or has the right to control the means or methods of performance, that typically is deemed an employment relationship, and the company really needs to be comfortable abdicating that right of control in order to have a defensible independent contractor relationship. Now, now with that, you can certainly define the objective. And if you're a broker model, ideally what you want to try to do is make the broker as invisible as possible and as making as few decisions as possible on the, on the substance of the work. Interesting. And so how do people get in trouble? I mean, obviously by violating those tenants, obviously. Well, I can tell you how they, most often how a company can get into trouble is by, well, first, first, I think a threshold question is uh, um, certain types of relationships are inherently employee-based. Certain types are amenable to independent contractors. So I think, I think first, if, you know, for example, if a company is just trying to, you know, for example, they say, well, I just want to reduce my payroll-related costs. I'm just going to convert these employees to independent contractors. Probably not, not work unless you make substantial changes. But I, I guess typically what will get a company in, in the trouble is where we'll try to exert control over what the contractor does. And, and that will essentially, again, it becomes a fact issue. And the more right of control the company has, the more vulnerable it becomes. So a ways to protect companies against that type of risk is to have a very clear independent contractor agreement that clearly sets forth the terms and makes it very clear that the right of control resides with the contract, not with the company. And, and just to try to train your office employees who interact with the independent contractors to respect their independent status and not try to dictate to them how they do what it is they're contracted to do. So, um, and, and I would imagine the penalties for uh, violating those laws are pretty big. They can be. Um, for federal employment tax purposes, you could be looking at the range of 20 to 30%. In the FLSA area, it, it depends upon how many hours per week an independent contractor works, because you know any hour work in excess of 40 per week, that could be an overtime liability. And plus, if they find willful violation, there could also be a penalty assessed for that. And right now, it is essentially $1,100 per violation. 
be aware in the budget reconciliation proposal in the House, the proposal was to increase that $1,100 penalty 20-fold to make it in excess of $20,000 for a violation under the FOSA. Now, again, that's just been proposed, but in the current law, it's, it's $1,100 per violation if they find willful or repeated violation. So let's talk about that. So we have uh, perhaps a labor-friendly um, administration uh, right now, and perhaps even Congress. So what do you see in the near future, or at least looking forward, say, four to eight years? You know, what do you see out there as far as employers, you know, having to change their business models? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think the Biden administration has been very explicit even leading up to the campaign, if you go to the Biden-Harris website, it was very strident in advising essentially voters that our goal, if we are elected, is to aggressively pursue what they characterize as a work in misclassification. So I think we're going to see an increased enforcement activity at the IRS. I think we're going to be increased funding at IRS to do so. Likewise, at the U.S. Department of Labor, I think we're going to see increased enforcement efforts. And I think also the U.S. Department of Labor has, has been pretty clear that they intend to be a little more draconian in their outcomes. Because under the FLSA, Fair Labor Standards Act, again, for overtime minimum wage, if there's a violation found, say unpaid overtime, what Department of Labor can do is collect the unpaid overtime, but also collect what they call liquidated damages which is essentially double damages under the FLSA. So I have to say under the Trump administration, typically the Department of Labor was not pursuing double damages. My sense is under the current administration, it probably will routinely pursue the double damages. So in my view, what that means, I think companies doing business with independent contractors, and now would be the time to kind of tighten the hatches, batten the hatches if you can, you know, review the agreements, update the websites, et cetera, and make sure that you have your relationships as defensible as possible. And also be mindful, if you happen to do business in the state of California, that state has a, a sort of unusual test, what's called this ABC test, three-factor test, which is essentially the common law test, the general test, plus two mandatory additional factors. So in addition to having a traditional independent contractor relationship, you must also be able to show, in California that is, that the services were outside the usual course of your company's business, and also that the independent contractors are customarily engaged in a separate trader business. Well, we've seen things like this uh, hold up sales, and we've seen that you know, companies not structured properly uh, can certainly hurt the value of selling their company in the future. So they can hire someone like you or they can hire your firm to prophylactically look, you know, at what they're doing now? Oh, sure. We've done quite a bit of that. Or I have, I mean, both on the buyer side or on the selling side, you know, they evaluate the company. If it's on the sell side, all we can do is, make certain changes if necessary to strengthen the model so that when you present it to a potential buyer, you have essentially a defensible model. And in the area of the IRS, for example, <clears throat> there is a safe harbor that can apply. So in some cases, you can obtain, for example, a tax opinion, including that the independent contractor relationships are proper 
for federal employment tax purposes, and if you meet a couple additional criteria, then you are essentially safe haven protected against potential federal employment tax liabilities. So there are ways you can grossly minimize those risks. And again, under the FLSA, just, I mean, properly restructure the, the relationships so that they become defensive. And that, that sounds like uh, very good advice. Uh, as we kind of wrap up this, is there any last advice that you would give uh, owners of businesses to look out for moving forward? Well, I think if you're on the sell side, I think it's never too early to start preparing your relationships so that when you're explaining them to the buyer, you can convince them that, that they are defensible. On the buy side, I think it certainly is advisable, in my opinion, to if, if the company you're considering acquiring is operating with independent contractors, to make two determinations. First, what is the potential potential liability if you lose? And second, you know, are they defensible? And if, and if not now, are they such that they could be made defensible with certain changes? Because a lot of times, you'll see a relationship that may not be defensible right now, but it's inherently an independent contractor type business. So if you make certain changes, you can convert what is now sort of a, a high risk relationship into a, a defensible relationship. It sounds great. And I know that uh, you only represent companies. So yes, 100% of the time, we never ever would represent an independent contractor suing a company. Right. So yep. And so what's the best way to get in touch with you if a company wants to learn more and perhaps even hire you to help uh, them gauge and look at their documents and make sure that their business, the model is solid moving forward. I have a website, the whole raw LLC.com. Telephone number is 202-659-0000. And my email, probably too long to give over the verbally, but it's it's rholra at holrallc.com. We will throw that in the show notes and get all your contact information out there. So, Russell, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on today. Andy, thank you very much. Hey, Andy, do you know what time it is? It's time for our deal of the week. Deal of the week. Sold. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It is Deal of the Week, and we have Michael Shea from Transworld Business Advisors of Central Florida as a returning guest, uh, just because he is uh, on number 22 for this year, and uh, he's got a, a great deal. So we, we definitely wanted to talk about it. Healthcare, seeing a lot of movement in the healthcare industry these days. So Michael, let's jump right in. Tell us about it. Yeah, so this was a 31-year-old uh, healthcare staffing company. It was a little odd. We know there's nurse staffing. This was, was this one was pharmacists. Um, so based in Central Florida, primarily servicing Southeast, working with people like Publix, Walmart, um, you know, Winn Dixie. Uh, really interesting to get into the mechanics of of how their business thrived through COVID. Um, you know, pharmacists get exposed. Yeah. Pharmacists goes down. Pharmacy still got to be open. Uh, learned some things about the ratios of technicians to to pharmacists and then the commercial pharmacies that are producing for the online community. Um, well, this one was referred to by our 
affiliate partner, Ken Gluckman, you know, one of the closing attorneys we use up here. Um, a wonderful gentleman, you know, looking to retire. He was actually going to c- shut the company down. He's mm. like, yeah, I'll just shut it down. I said, no, I think I can get you some money. So we ended up getting him. We took it to market at a million. And uh, first day we were just inundated. So we hit the pause button and raised the price and uh, went up to 1.25 and got full cash uh, offer. Did it with the SBA, did it with uh, Berkshire Bank, um, another one of our partners, and uh, got it wrapped up and closed. Wow. Sounds like a great deal for a seller. I mean, was, he's going to close the business. Yeah, he was. He, he cried at the closing table. Um, seller with the buyer was a young man, uh, actually uh, ex-CIA. Um, Interesting conversations there. Never, sure. never came down. Did the entire negotiations, due diligence, all of it was done via Zoom. Um, they came in, met that day. You know, the the seller was kind of like, "This is anticlimactic." Took us like 15 minutes to do the closing, and he's like, "That's it." I'm like, "Yeah, here's your check," and he was really, really happy. So, sounds like a great deal. Good deals for good people, as always. Michael, what's the best way to get in touch with you if somebody wants to talk to you about it? Cell phone, uh, which I get a lot of texts on, 321-287-0349. My email is mike at tworld.com. And you can always grab me on any one of the social social network platforms. Excellent. Thanks for coming. All right. Thank you. Everybody, welcome back to the Deal Board. And we have a great guest today. We have Jay Kent from Lifeguard. What is it? (laughs) One more time. It's Acquisition Lifeguards. Acquisition Lifeguards. I like when we mess up, so I'm keeping that one. So Acquisition Lifeguards. But, you know, first of all, we love entrepreneur stories, so we're going to hear from you in a second about how you got started in business and how you wound up here. Uh, But in M&A, and I've done this before, and I always, I've said it before, if we didn't have IT problems, we wouldn't have any problems. So Buying a business and then dealing with assuming or rolling up into a deal and having IT issues is got to be a huge thing. And you are a huge resource for that. But first, tell us your story, Jake. Andrew, appreciate you actually having me on. So uh, I've, I'm about 24 years deep in IT. Um, I certainly have the uh, the battle scars to you know be able to talk a, a long time. But, uh, you know, over the the years that I've been working in IT, you know, I've started two IT businesses. Uh, when IT went down back in uh, you know the uh, you know mid two thousands, I transitioned over and started three real estate companies. Uh, then real estate went in the toilet, and I came back to IT. Um, you know, along the way, I started a bank. So uh, you know, long tenure of of actually wanting to actually get things started. That's really what motivates me. Is you know the the, how do we actually get this off the ground? So, uh, you know, over the years in the IT, um, you know, I've actually been, you know, moving over toward the executive side to really try to understand what where that gap is between, you know, the IT um, you know, technologist and the uh, CEO and the CFO and, you know, try to really bridge that gap. So, you know, the CEO and the CFO, they typically are all about numbers and, you know, How's the culture going to come in and, you know, how are we going to fold this in? And, you know, at the end of the day, some of them don't think about IT or they don't think it's a big deal, right? So, you know, we've actually um, done a number of acquisitions. And unfortunately, you know, when we engage with new companies, typically we're engaged in a firefight. So, you know, absolutely. So, 
you know, I mean, just just about six, eight months ago, you know, we had uh, a lady named Sarah that came to us and had 26 site acquisition dropped on her. And she was used to doing, you know, two or three sites at a time. And she didn't have the, uh, you know, the infrastructure of contacts across the U.S. to help her out, uh, whereas we did. So we were able to parachute people in uh, to, you know, the 26 locations and make sure they had somebody to actually turn the wrench. Um, you know, now we're you know, six, eight months in and we're five acquisitions in. You know, we've helped them out with you know, bridging that gap as far as the executive to the technologist, helped them understand you know, how are these things going to impact their overall IT and then help them actually widgetize or black box, you know, how they're actually going to approach the acquisition such that the CFO and the CEO actually had an idea of what they uh, were actually acquiring as they were going in. Is it is it financial systems or is it like customer relationship management systems or is it inventory systems or is it every all of the above? It is all of the above, right? So uh, we worked with a a large manufacturing company, and uh, you know they brought in six different organizations over a period of about two years, and you know we were consulting with them to talk about hey your ERP systems, which actually drives all of your business really. Um, you know, you really need to get those consolidated because you have, you know, things on the East Coast that can't be ordered on the West Coast and vice versa. So, you know, we were consulting with them to uh, help them lay out a budget. And they, they were like, that, that can't be, that, that is way too high. So they engaged Gartner. And Gartner came in and says, you're right, they're wrong. Um, they're way too low. Mm-hmm. It's going it's to be an extra couple million. So we had actually budgeted about $6 million to get them actually integrated. And Gartner came in and said, no, it's probably going to be closer to $8 million. And oh, by the way, you got $2 million of acquisition up front. So, I mean, that, that's just an ERP situation, right? So, what if you were going to give business owners advice when they're looking to roll up or buy other businesses or do acquisitions, like what are some of the pain points when bringing on another you know, what wins? Is it usually the, the person with the better technology or the one that was bigger? I mean, you know, like, you know, so. So, so bigger doesn't always mean better, right? I mean, you can be a large organization and have poor IT practices, or you could be a small organization with some very efficient um, IT practices and, and very good IT security, right? So it, it really gets into looking at, you know, look at yourself in the mirror first, right? So. What do we look like? What are our standards? You know, how do we um, go to market with our customers so that we can evaluate, you know, who we're actually bringing in? So if we open our door, um, you know, how are we going to impact our security? That's number one. Um, you know, how are we going to impact our overall capacity such that, you know, uh, customers used to come into our website and, and clicking and it's click, 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 and they click through. And now all of a sudden we throw all this additional capacity on and they're, they got page load problems and things like that, right? So that's a second thing. And then probably a third thing is, you know, let, let's say that you're a, a Microsoft Office 365 organization and you go and buy a, a Google Apps organization, you got to actually blend those in. And I can tell you, somebody that really likes Google Apps is going to be very resistant to going to Office 365 and vice versa. So, I mean, you, you're looking at, you know, how do you fold infrastructure together? How do you pull the finding system together and then how do you actually make the user experience you know, something that is palatable for you know everyone involved. 
Yeah, well, I'm, I wish that was possible because I just I had to give up my Gmail to go to Office 365 in my own organization because you know we were uh, trying to bring everybody under one big roof. And uh, so uh, you met you've mentioned the magic word these days is security. Uh, it, it couldn't be anything less bigger on the headlines than uh, security right now, cybersecurity. So what kind, you know what are you looking for when you go into a company and, and what is kind of some key advice even for small business people? Yeah, so I mean obviously with the COVID these days it's completely moved up, right? So you know you know rewind back a couple of years ago it was all about how are users going to connect to you, you know how are you going to intercommunicate with each other? Uh, you know, how are you going to communicate with your customers and things like that? And, you know, now that people are sitting at home, it's, well, how are we going to protect our data and our assets that are sitting out somewhere on an unprotected network? And how are we going to prevent them from actually impacting us and our overall security? So, I mean, the puck has moved so much over the last year and a half with COVID that, you know, everyone's having to go back to the drawing board and, and evaluate how they're going about it. Right. So, I mean, we had a we had a, a CIO come to us. His name was Derek, and I mean, basically, he had just built this security fortress, and uh, you know, basically, it, it it had growth for them for you know maybe a, a couple few years. And uh, the executive team came in and said, "Hey, we just acquired uh, 16 locations across the the uh, the pond, and you need to integrate those in." Oh, by the way, yesterday, uh, come to find out. You know, they had known about it for at least nine, 12 months and never engaged Derek. And so he came to us and he was in absolute panic. So we we helicoptered in and unfortunately had to rip out everything that he had put in because it wasn't upgradable. Right. So when you start looking at the overall security, you know, it, it really gets into what's the capacity capabilities, what's the scalability and then. You know, how do you actually move from your desk to a conference room to your house to a, a Starbucks, right? So it, it's, it's really more about how are we protecting our data and then preventing, the, you know, the, the, at ransomware, that bad word of ransomware. How do we prevent our data from getting encrypted where we have to either pay a ransom or, you know, God forbid, hopefully we can recover from backup. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, it, it's pretty amazing. I think the headline this morning was what was it 11 million that they paid the meat yeah. company? I mean yeah, we actually we actually have a a company we've been working with for about 8 years um and you know basically there was a vulnerability that came through and the the funny thing was some good samaritan actually sent an email to the executive team and said, "Hey, we have your usernames and passwords and we can get into your network." We're we're not going to exploit them, but you need to go ahead and correct this issue. And they they're like, oh, that's that's spam. And they reached back out to them on LinkedIn, and they said, hey, it's us again. Still got the problem. So they ignored it again, and they got hit by ransomware. Bam, they're down twelve weeks. Had to rebuild everything. Yeah, so it's it's a real possibility that you can get hit. And the thing is, it only takes one endpoint that can really take your infrastructure and your uh, assets down. Yeah. So obviously backup must be pretty important these days. Yeah. So, uh, so typically when we're looking at security, we're looking at it as overall business continuity, right? So let's say, you know, take COVID out, take ransomware out. Let's, 
let's say you had a natural disaster and it, it dropped your headquarters to the, the ground, you know, how are you actually going to you know, recover from that, you know, next week, you know, a month out, et cetera. Um, I mean, I think now with, um, you know, post COVID, I think most organizations are in much better shape from a business continuity perspective with everybody working from home, but we still have that issue with the ransomware and the unprotected assets. And, and actually, when you move everything to home, the overall manageability of your assets drops to the floor. That's, I mean, it's all in, incredibly important stuff these days. If you were going to give, uh, you know, people thinking about doing uh, either a sale or a purchase, you know, again, what, what would be a couple tips for them uh, to think about, you know, even preparing your business for sale? What, what would be the best thing to do? Yeah, so I think there's really three things, and that's that's what we've honed in on with the acquisition lifeguard. And the first one is making sure you create the lens and make sure that everyone's on the same page, right? So make sure you get a good cadence between the executive team and the technology team, such that they know, hey, we're about to expand via acquisition, or hey, we might just be expanding organically, right? Make sure that as they're doing their capacity planning, they know hey, I'm about to buy something. I don't need 20%. I need 100% growth over the next you know, three months, three years, et cetera. So that'd be the first piece. Um, the second piece would be looking at your overall infrastructure and understanding you know, what's going to happen when you start piling things on. So you, know, you imagine a uh, municipality and uh, you know, cities and states are constantly planning for growth of their city and their um, you know, roads and things like that. And it only takes one road that was poorly planned to really cause a bottleneck um, you know, of people getting from one area to the other, right? So really looking in the mirror and looking at your infrastructure and saying, you know, what can we service now? And if we throw all of this on it, you know, can we service it? In addition to that, as we're buying, making sure that we're buying things that are scalable and not such that they won't box us in, right? And then the third piece would be um, actually get your widget, get your black box identified such as you can say, hey, here's how we do business such that when you go to someone else, how is um, that transition um, from what they typically do, what's it going to look like coming to us? And then what's that overall cost going to be to us to actually make that integration happen? And hopefully we can build it into the deal. Right. So that so that's an acquire. So and someone that's looking to be acquired, you know, I would basically heed those three things and, and say, hey, you know, what's best practices as far as what the black box looks like? Um, you know, what does my infrastructure look like and how does that align with best practices? You know, and again, make sure the executive team and the technologists are actually in sync. Well, it sounds like acquisition lifeguard could save a lot of time and money. Uh, post acquisition, or even during due diligence, I'm sure that it, is that when you get involved. Um, in some cases, we do, um, and but in most cases, we tend to get engaged on the back end, and then we get um, you know upfront in the due diligence. We had a a large oil company actually reach out to us. Uh, actually, it was about six weeks ago, and uh, they had been watching our videos online in the. Uh, the uh, merger and acquisition manager said, I never thought about IT. He said, you just saved me hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I was just watching your video. I said, well, I'm, I'm glad that worked out for you. 
Excellent. So if somebody did want to get you involved in a deal, what's the best way to get in touch with you? You just go to acquisitionlifeguard.com. That's plural, theacquisitionlifeguards.com forward slash growth. And, uh, you know, fill that out and we're happy to engage. It's great. And it's great talking to you, Jake. Thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It was a great time to be here. Hey, Jessica, you know what time it is? Money time? Almost. It's time for Listing of the Week. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It is Listing of the Week, and we have Andy Shaw from Trans World Business Advisors of Richmond. Andy has a great listing, a nice, pretty big listing. And so, Andy, why don't you give us a little bit more information about it? Sure. So this uh, this listing is based out of uh, Northern Virginia. It's a beauty brand company. Uh, they've been in business for 20 plus years. Uh, they are more competitor like uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, Ulta uh, Beauty Products. They sell, uh, they are more on the e-commerce side. Uh, they are doing, uh, they're doing great since last 20 years. Uh, their uh, bottom line is uh, half a million dollars. Uh, we have listed at like $10 million. There's a lot of potential to grow in the business. Uh, uh, somebody uh, who can come in and uh, be more an owner operator can scale the business. Uh, they more are like, uh, they do the manufacturing, they do, uh, do their distribution and they do the end product. So they are a mix of everything. It's not like that they get a product uh, from third party and do it, but they're everything in house. So it's a great listing. Uh, Sounds it's, like a great listing, right? Absolutely. And Andy, like, you know, as you were, uh, you mentioned that this is a woman-owned organization, yes. all the organic product, and they have a cause that they support, like, you know, other causes. And this is like, you know, looks like it has very high multiple. What are the revenues uh, on this uh, listing? So the revenue is between 1.5 to $2 million. We have listed at $10 million. So absolutely, the multiple is high on the asking price, but uh, there is a lot of uh, scale, uh, scale, scalable business, and uh, it's good for the investor. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of these consumer product businesses go for high multiples. A lot of times, because they have the SKUs with certain uh, retailers and certain online retailers, we've seen other strategic buyers want to come in and take those SKUs and be able to put it through their channels and be able to sell those products for a lot more money. So we are going out to the market like Transworld does and uh, find the best buyer for that business. So Andy, if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? So the, uh, the best way to get in touch with me is my phone number, which is 804-894-0679. And I can be reached at asha at twell.com. Excellent. Thank you, Rupesh. Thank you, Andy, for coming on today. Thank, Thank you guys you. for having Thank us. You. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, welcome back, everybody. And it is the Deal Board, and we have a very special guest. Uh, I was on his podcast, uh, Engineering uh, Engineer of Finance. Uh, Ken Green is here with us today with an E. Uh, Ken is also uh, president of Green uh, Companies, and he is a finance and insurance, but only different. He has a Kind of a boutique firm, but what I like about Ken is he's a big thinker, uh, and he likes to help his clients, and he wants to be a resource. And we were talking on his podcast about you know planning to sell your business, and we wanted to bring him on here because we thought he had some great insight to what's happening today. One of the questions we want to ask you, Ken, 
uh, is about capital gains. But first, why don't you give us a little background uh, so we can introduce you to our audience? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Andy. I, 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 you were a great guest. I don't know if it was a few months ago. I'll find the episode while we're doing the show. Or we'll just you can put in your show notes. But uh, you had my brain spinning. So yeah, I'm the president of Green Finance and Insurance, only different. I've been in the financial and insurance industry now, geez, over 10 years. And I host the podcast, the Engineer of Finance podcast. And the whole way I got in this industry, I was thrusted into it. I'm an electrical engineer, licensed civil engineer, and all land development stopped back in 08, which interesting, before we started the show, you visit us when we were a ghost town. Yes. All land development stopped. And uh, so instead of being on the corner saying, engineer for food, it was the first time I ever made a career decision for the money to survive. And I've gone into this industry, which in many ways, I hate the financial industry, but I love my clients. And I like taking an engineering approach to money. And that's where the Engineer of Finance podcast came from. I've been doing that for years. And I just love helping people create more and more wealth and have fun doing it. Well, I, I, I come from an engineering family. Uh, my dad's an engineer. My uncles were engineers, all in the power industry, mechanical engineers. Uh, and one was a nuclear scientist. But what I've learned from being around engineers and actually studying engineering uh, in college a little bit, I wasn't that smart to make it through, but what I've learned is engineers are great pop problem solvers, right? Whenever something comes up, uh, they're able to project management and get things done. And they're always thinking about ways of fixing things. So that's what I kind of like about our conversations. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, I would say troubleshooting is probably a great skill set. I love fixing the problem. Now, of course, that might drive my wife nuts because sometimes she doesn't want to try me to fix the problem. Just relax. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. well, thanks for having me on. It's great being here. Yeah, it's great. And one of the problems that we're kind of predicting for 2021 coming through and what may affect our business and people selling business is capital gains. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly the government has borrowed a lot of money over the last few years, if not several years, and they're going to need to raise revenues. And obviously, we think that capital gains are already discussing it. Are going to come through. So, what what do you think is going to happen, or what do you, you know, think is going to be some of the ways that we can deal with this increase in capital gains? Well, a few things. I actually did an episode on this a few weeks ago. Um, you know, about a year ago, actually, I was talking one episode that a tax storm is coming. I mean, taxes are on sale right now, and now at the time, I was talking about taxes sunsetting in twenty twenty five. And so during the Trump administration, those tax cuts were pretty, I mean, it really simplified. I think 92%, right around a little bit over 90% of families were just taking the standard deduction. They made it so simple, right? And it was interesting as far as marketing wise, I don't think how many families realized how much they saved in income taxes. They thought in a way it went up. It's like, no, it went up for some clients in Jersey, New York, and California that lost that uh, state deduction that was limited. But for a lot of families and corporations, uh, that was huge, cutting down uh, corporate income taxes or individual uh, taxes. I got, well, some of us got hosed a little bit, but that's okay. It was, for the most part, it was really good and surprisingly, record revenue for our government. Isn't that amazing? Right. Um, in, in taxes were decreased and record revenues for our uh, government. However, the concern was our government doesn't know how to live within its means. Like, unfortunately, a lot of American households, um, you know, they got record revenues and they just created more of a record deficit. And well, this is a problem. It's got to stop. 
these politicians on all sides, on both sides, whatever aisle, all of them, they need to stop buying votes, right? This is a problem. This will implode. Now, now a year later, we have a different administration, a different approach, and to increase tax revenues, they want to increase taxes. Okay. And a big one's got, there's a few that are concerned, capital gains. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it could be devastating. We'll see what happens. I think there is going to be resistance, even though it's one-party rule in the House and Senate at this time. I am nervous about it, um, but if the proposal that was put on play of raising essentially just eliminates it, right? Don't even just taking capital gains potentially to thirty nine point six percent. That's the highest tax bracket, right? Uh, that I think will be devastating. I mean, what what wealthy individual do you know, Andy, that would want to invest in some type of security that they believe in on the stock? Let's just say in the stock market. Hang on to that. It's pretty. It can be really risky. Hang on to that stock for over a year, uh, and then get hit um, with thirty nine point six percent on that gain. That, right. That's outrageous. I think fifteen percent right. was very fair, or twenty percent. Yeah, they, I mean they've ha- already started talking about a carve out for gains less than a million dollars not applying, and I think there is a lot of horse trading to be done between now and then. Uh, but, you know, what our concern and, and certainly our client's concern is, you know, it's a little different of holding a stock, uh, investing in a stock, making a, over a million dollar gain, not really kind of putting your blood, sweat and tears into that, having to pay out 40% of the profits. But building a business over 10, Even 20 years, huh? Even more painful, isn't it? Right. I mean, and then having 40% of that having to be paid in taxes, I think we're going to see a lot of people if that really does come to pass. Or even we saw it uh, when when capital gains was a little bit higher. I mean, it was, it was higher at one point. Uh, we saw people putting into place things to try to save on ta- capital gains taxes. I was in my argument. So uh, I always, people ask me what the stock market's going to do all the time. And I say it's either going to go up, down, or sideways, mm-hmm. right? I don't have a crystal ball. Anyone pretends to have a crystal ball, they're broken. And so it, it's hard. And the way I see it right now, it's kind of like gossip. We don't know what's coming. I mean, so for the first quarter of this year, they had all this rumor mill of what the Biden administration was uh, planning to do. I would argue threatening to do, but plan and do. And I'm like, these are just really bad strategies. This isn't even a political discussion. This is just simple math and economics. This is a bad strategy. I mean, removing step up in basis, it's not just a, a capital gains issue. Removal of step up in basis, raising corporate income taxes, oh, and um, uh, eliminating essentially capital gains, raising it to 39.6. Yes, if your income's over a million, whatever that little garbage is. I mean, that's very, very dangerous strategy. And I, and I talk about a couple of things. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I think what's most important this time, and I know it takes time and there's exposure to it, but I think more shows like yours, Andy, and mine and other podcasts, and I really think media should be all over this and start talking about serious issues. Uh, this will punish small business owners. You go to 39.6, and to your point, all this energy, and it is blood and sweat and a lot of sleepless nights. I've been running a small company since, geez Louise, end of 2008. I always thought I knew as an employee, I always cared for my the business owners, and I always wanted to thrive. Never knew what it's like to be wake up at night, making sure you can meet payroll and meet expenses 
you go through all that, you finally have an exit strategy working with like a business broker like you, right? To tee it up. And then the government's going to say, thank you and hit you with the 39.6% capital gains tax. That's outrageous. And so one thing, just being proactive, I think we need to call our reps and our centers and, and get all over their butt with pitchforks. I mean, figuratively with pitchforks. Of course. Of not course. the crap that happened in January. And let uh, all our um, politicians know this is a horrible idea. You're going to destroy us. I mean, do you really want to help families out? Is this really about making our economy strong or is there a different agenda? Right. Um, now, I can say that once this, if it does become law, then we can look for solutions, but I, I don't know. Now, I can say that I do have business owners and I do have uh, clients that have strategically decided on a risk reward level to sell their companies this year, sell substantial profits in real estate this year for fear of the storm that might be coming with those capital gains. It's like, hey, you know what? I'd rather take 20% now than potentially have to pay double that kind of opportunity cost next year if this really comes to fruition. So that's how a lot of people are adopting this year is like, you know what? Kind of on the fence when I was going to sell my company or real estate. This has pushed me over. We're selling now. Now the big fear is, Fingers crossed, we're praying they don't make it retroactive, which I think is absolutely criminal and entirely different discussion. Uh, but does that help on the capital gains discussion? We should be calling yeah. every single leader. Well, leader is a tough word. Politician and say, don't do this. This is horrible. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I think there's a, there's already talk at the business brokers, the IBBA and some of the M&A uh, source uh organizations to uh put our you know our collective and the realtors i mean you know because the realtors are selling commercial and you know real estate and people are getting gains and you're right it hurts the small you know it hurts small business people and 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 for us to organize and there's a whole bunch of tools i don't know if you've ever used them like rally congress where you put your name and your address in and it creates a letter uh, and, you know, we, we try to get people to uh, write letters as oh, well, because it is that? important. They need to hear from us. How do you spell, that? Do you spell that? A rally Congress? I, I didn't mean to put you on the Congress. spot, but I'm going to look this up after the show. Yeah. So I think you can uh, you subscribe. We have, we've had uh, a, an effort to codify some of the stock compliance uh, sale issues to when people sell stock in their corporation. And we've tried to codify to make, make it again, giving small business the chance to sell stock in their corporations without having to go through SEC regulations. So trying to get a carve out for a certain amount and less. Again, looking to small business, the backbone of our economy. Uh, you know, there's a lot of pressures out there right now with small businesses, including getting through the pandemic. Uh, PPP certainly helped out a lot of people. But, uh, you know, right now there's, a, there's an employment issue. I mean, a lot of people are struggling to hire people uh, and there there's going to be kind of, uh, you know, once I, I, I have an article right now that I do think it is one of the best times ever to sell your business. And if any of these things come to pass, whether it be capital gains, whether it be uh, raising interest rates, uh, all those things are going to have kind of a downward pressure on, on valuation. And if, a, and like you said, if a whole bunch of people come to the market to sell their businesses, you know, we could have a flood of the market. So there's a lot of kind of things kind of worrying out there that uh, might drive the market uh, to get much more busy. Well, Andy, I think one thing, uh, questions I ask working with clients is, um, 
is someone has a company and they're on the fence. I mean, the best way, it's, it's way better to be proactive than reactive, without question. And if people are on the fence about whether they want to sell their business or have been in a couple of years, and we have this huge threat that it might be doubled on the capital gains, uh, it's time to make a really educated decision. Maybe this is the time to get ahead of it and just keep our fingers crossed it's not retroactive. I just think that would be very hard. It's happened in the past. I just pray that would just be so primal. They I don't think they will. They, 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 they have done it a little bit in the past, but they certainly haven't done it the way uh, I, I haven't seen it. It's such a big move. Uh, to do it retroactively, I think would be problematic, especially I, I going into you, a mid midterm years. Yeah, uh, I agree. Election. I think that would uh, people would hang on to that pain for a long time. That would be something hard to forget. And I agree with you. And so from a proactive standpoint, and there's a business owner that's on the fence thinking, hey, maybe this is a time to sell. I always like asking the question, hey, if you hang on to it and it goes up to 39.6 and you sell in a few years, can you live with that? And if the answer is no, Something to think about. And the other question is, if you sold it today, assuming it's going to go to 39.6, and come to find out it stayed next year, can you live with that? One is going to create more um, pain than the other uh, or joy. And I, and I think that's just kind of a good process. Is eventually, as logical as you're going to be on, on decision-making, eventually it's, it's an emotion thing too, right? Can you right. live with that? And it's the same thing like with other investments. It's like, hey, you want to go gamble? Uh, five grand and something or, or bigger money, if it all goes to zero, can you live with that? Or uh, conversely, uh, you don't pull the trigger because you don't want to lose the money and you miss out on it becoming a fortune. Can you live with that? Right. And yeah. what's going to allow you to take the next step? And I think as, as simple as that sounds question-wise, uh, it really helps people take action and really ask them, really make tough decisions and I think it makes those tough decisions easier just to, uh, to visualize uh, the emotion with it. And you're seeing that with your clients, I would imagine. That's kind of the process you're taking people through right now. I mean, the stock market is hot. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of place to park your money that is having a really good return that's super safe. So what are you telling your clients? Are you, that's that speech or is there, you know, more that to speech, it? it really helps, Andy. <laughs> it's just a couple of questions, right? And I can tell you, I have some very wealthy clients that uh, uh, have decided to sell and have successfully sold their uh, uh, real estate um, here uh, on the West Coast, Nevada, California, uh, because of their concern. They were on the fence anyway. Real estate, for example, is through the roof and it can be a great business asset. I mean, as a landlord, and uh, this is when's the t best time to sell a company and when's the best time to sell assets is when it's at a peak, although the majority, I think it pays to be contrarian. Unfortunately, the majority sell <laughs> things were at the bottom uh, is, as wrong as everyone knows that, but most people can't handle the pain anymore. So they're like, I'm out. I can't handle this company more. I can't handle these issues. I can't handle losing all this on the stock market. So I'm out where the best time to sell a company is, well, I think you've mentioned on the show is when it's still growing. And as it's, it's expanding, uh, but still why it's on its up phase. And uh, I would argue the stock market, the best time to sell is right before that correction. And, and just from um, the best way to maintain wealth, create more wealth, become wealthier, a lot of it is reducing opportunity costs. And we have this really big thing dangling in front of us that they might increase that tax opportunity cost by, uh, I mean, double it. It's outrageous. 
Yeah. And that might be enough that if you have the ability, just simple numbers to make $5 million, $6 million in uh, profit and capital gains, uh, I think most people would rather pay 1.2 million as opposed to 2.4. Right. I mean, if you look at how the majority of the industry, I don't teach it this way, but if you look at the majority of the financial industry, when they're talking about pay down schedules, when you retire and safe withdrawal rates, and then using fancy Monte Carlo simulations to justify taking less than 3% of your money for passive income, which is an outrageous number. I know why they do it, but they're myopic in their thinking. If you can only take 3% withdrawal rate on $1 million, that's only 30,000 a year. Or if you could save another 1. million in opportunity costs right, in taxes, in that example, well, now that's 60,000 a year. That, that's huge. Yeah, it's a big number. And so anyway, I would just say it would be nice though if, if we have politicians that really care, please don't do this to us. <laughs> please don't do it. It's going to be pain across the board and it's going to hurt the most. It's always middle income and the poor. It will, it will be very painful. Um, so I was like, man, I didn't, how can we make capital gains exciting? It's not, but it's a little scary. Uh, but maybe taxes or capital gains are still on sale right now. So this but might it, be the right time to pull the trigger for people who are on the fence. Yeah. It, it, but, but this was a great kind of conversation and lesson for business risk. I mean, we talk about it all the time. Uh, why should you sell your business? And usually it's because you have to, right? There's something happened in your life. You need to retire. You're sick. You want to move. Uh, you know, you just want to change in life. Uh, but these kind of things, these uh, one is the capital gains, others, you know, a lot of other business risks that we kind of touched on is something to get with someone like Ken, get with them, sit down and have this rational conversation of what's going on. And so many people don't do it. So, you know, I want to thank you for coming on today and just talking through that because it's really important. We could have you back on for some more happier news. Perhaps I'll have you back on for an update when they finally come up with whatever they're going to do. So that would be great. Once we know what they've rammed down, ramrodded down our throats in the next few months. Yeah. And, and if this the, plays out and if it does double, I'm sure there's going to be products and things that uh, we can do to uh, park some money or, you know, because that's what happens. Creativity comes out. Uh, entrepreneurs, business owners are phenomenal. We're very optimistic people, aren't we, Andy? We are. And I'm sure all the listeners of your show, we're very, we're entrepreneurs. So we, we fool ourselves into the positive to, to keep doing what we're doing. And so when issues present themselves, we always find a way uh, to work within the rules and, and play the game. Exactly. That's all the time. So Ken, if someone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, best way to get a hold of me is just, uh, I would say, to go to uh, two things. You can always look in, at my podcast, listen in, uh, the Engineer of Finance podcast. You know you've arrived when you see this big, beautiful green dinosaur. And um, also my website's engineerfinance.com. And there's a little button on the upper right-hand side that says uh, chat with Ken, talk with Ken. Uh, yeah, I'd love to see how I can help you, uh, point you in the right direction and help you take the next step. Yeah, he's a very accessible guy and uh, love talking to you. Thank you, Ken, for coming on today. Hey, thank you. Thanks for tuning into the show today. If you like the podcast, share it with your friends on social media. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions, would like to appear, or have suggestions for topics for the show, get in contact with us through our website, thedealboardpodcast.com.
Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.